the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Courtney Emmerich. And I'm Donnell Wright. Today we're going to be talking about social changes we've been faced with. We'll get perspectives from two of our guests. With us today are Alex Webb and Larry Holman. Thank you both for joining us today. All right, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Alex and Larry, for joining us today. Uh, this is our second podcast on social justice, and it's important that we continue to have these conversations to gain perspective from across the nation. In addition to the COVID-19 pandemic, the nation faced a number of challenges with social unrest and the death of George Floyd. I'd like to begin today by asking a question of our guests. How have the current events around the nation involving race relations affected you and your family? So I work for the St. Paul district. And as you may imagine, being in St. Paul, Minnesota, we are very close to what happened uh, with the, the death of George Floyd this past summer. For me, it was a really sort of eye-opening moment to experience, you know, watch that on TV um, and to just, you know, uh, feel all kinds of emotions coming from that. So I have a very sort of diverse family. My wife uh, is Caucasian. I have two biracial uh, kids. And we've been blessed to, to have very good experiences so far living in Minnesota. It's been very welcoming. But, but seeing that uh, take place with the killing of George Floyd uh, really shook me out of my comfort zone to, to know that uh, racism still exists in our country that uh, police brutality is still, is still a problem and that, um, you know, the, the world that I want my kids to grow up in, you know, needs to, um, to change. So for me, it was just kind of an eye-opening moment to just reckon with the fact that, you know, things are, are still problematic in many ways in the world. And for me, um, this is Larry. Uh, it really shook me uh, and my family to our core. Um, it, it reminded me of a struggle from uh, experience I had in the past, and also it really bothered me to a point where I felt I need to sit down with my my daughter. She was nine at the time, and have a discussion about race, racism, um, pol- police brutality, and I really felt my wife and I felt we were about to steal her innocence away, right? Because we raised her to be strong, independent, individual thinker, to smash through glass ceilings and pull other people up. But now we had to really sit her down and let her know how difficult the world is, how it, it's not all people are nice, how when people see what she looks like, they formulate an opinion on her capability without even seeing her do anything. So I had to have that, that tough talk with my daughter. She asked really tough questions, but we made it through it. And then I shared something with my family that I was really embarrassed about personally that occurred. I served in Iraq in 2007 and 2008 in Fallujah. It was at the time called the most dangerous place on earth. You'll see people with automatic weapons. There were terrorists there. There were roadside bombs. You name it. This particular time um, when I was in the military, I was uh, going home, I got pulled over for speeding. So my father, who was a cop, 
always taught me when I got pulled over, of course, you got your hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel, but also if you got tinted windows, roll all your windows, windows down so a cop can have a vantage point to see into your car so they can see you're not a threat. So I did that as, as, usual, as usual as I've been instructed to do. And as I saw out of my side mirror, he put his hand on his weapon, which is normal, but I, I heard the click where he unfastened his holster and then he slid his finger into the trigger well of his weapon. And then when he got to my window, he was in a shooter stance, like he was ready for armed combat. And so I, I froze. I sat there. He asked for my license and registration, and I told him, I'm like, I'm, sir, I'm terrified. And he was like, if you had nothing to be afraid about or you didn't do anything wrong, you have nothing to fear. I said, sir, you're in a shooter stance right now. You got the finger in the trigger well of your weapon. I said, I don't want to make any sudden moves. And he was like, how do you know what a trigger well and a shooter stance is? I said, well, I'm in the military. So he relaxed his posture. Um, and I said, you know, I just want to make sure we both make it home to our families without incident. And why that situation is so embarrassing to me, um, I, I quickly pulled out my military ID card. I got, I got a ticket and I went on. But the thing I realized after that incident was I wanted him to see me as something other than black. By hiding behind, hiding behind my military service, I wanted him to see me as that first. And that's the kind of shame I carried for a number of years. This happened um, not even a decade ago. So I'm not talking about something that happened uh, in my early youth. I was about to retire from the military at the time. So that's the kind of shame. I shared that because I didn't, I didn't even tell that story to my wife because I was ashamed. So I shared it and let her know, and, and with my children as well, to let them know that that can happen, not just something you see on TV that nearly every person of color I know can tell me about a negative experience they have with law enforcement, right? Nearly every, especially every man. And I talk about that. I said, you should never have a Delta where nearly everyone has had a negative experience and, and, uh, and a dominant group doesn't have that same type of experience. So I talk about it and I'm passionate about it. And I tell people, I said, you know, it's not about being anti-police. Heck, my dad was a cop, right? Um, it was more about bringing awareness to something that needs to change, right? Yeah, okay. All right, I got you. You know what? It's funny that you say that, Larry, because, yeah, I, I can I can attest that, you know, that I've gone through the same thing. You know, my father was a police officer, too. And so I, I absolutely I absolutely get it. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about when you said the, the shame, you know, for, for many years, you know, because I served in the military, too, but for many years, and, and, and even even up to, yes, oh, man, I, I would say maybe six, eight months ago, I didn't want people to see me as a black man. I just figured I need you to see me as a man. But now I got to thinking about it. I said, you know what, I need you to see me as a black man because, unfortunately, my plight, my life is not the same as everybody else's. The cops view me differently when they pull me over. People uh, who are not people of color view me a little bit differently when they talk to me. Uh, I've been asked questions, you know, I've been said to, you know, you man, you should you speak well, or, you know, they find out I have a degree or something like that, they're a little surprised at that. 
but to go back to what you were saying, I, I, I absolutely get it, but I, I want people to see me as a, a black man, not because I want to be militant or anything like that. It doesn't have anything to do with it. It's really a, a call to, hey, let's understand. That's why diversity is so great, because people need to understand what's going on, why people do what they do, uh, and, and all that. And there's nothing wrong with having conversations. That's why uh, the project inclusion that we've been doing uh, inside the core is so important because those conversations come about and, and all that. So I know how you feel having that conversation with, with your children. Alex, I know you, you said you have children, right? I do. Um, my, my kids uh, are, are very young. I've got a three-month-old son and a two-year-old daughter. So uh, my, my daughter knows the word no very well, but uh, <laughs> being able to have an in, intelligent conversation with her about race is something that we haven't, we haven't done yet. But given the situation right now in the world, it is something I thought about as they get older. How am I going to express to them well, what racism is, what it means to be black or to be partially black in their face, and, and how to live through the world with that lens? Yeah, I was just getting ready to ask you what, what you know, what that conversation is going to be at, be be like. You think, say, ten years from now or something like that. Hopefully, we'll be in a different situation. Hopefully, at that time. Courtney, you got any uh, two cents? Yeah, I got, yeah, I've got a lot to say. I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here. Prior to onboarding here at USACE, I I worked at a law enforcement agency. And there were a lot of discussions, you know, at the time, summer, when all of these events were unfolding across, you know, right in our backyard here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, but also across the nation, there were a lot of conversations in that community, that law enforcement community that I worked for about how do we make sure that we are treating everyone with dig dignity and respect, and how are we making sure that we're taking care of our fellow black officers and our officers of color who often feel like they're being torn between two communities, between their, you know, their law enforcement community and then the black community. And what I've seen unfold through all of this unrest is really a lot of people coming together and, a and opening the door for a lot of conversation. You know, this isn't a new problem. This isn't a new issue. But it's the first time in a long time for a lot of organizations, a lot of employers, that the door is truly being opened to allow for open, flowing conversation on race and, you know, what racism looks like today. You know, how can we prevent it in our organization? And how do we make sure everybody feels included? Janelle, do you have more on that? <laughs> Well, I tell you what, uh, just so that I don't end up doing a whole bunch of talking because you know I can talk. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, just having lived for, for many, many years, and I've, I've experienced quite a bit. You know, one of the things that I've always tried to teach my kids, you know, my daughter just turned 32. Uh, and one of the things that I taught her when she was younger uh, and my sons, uh, what, I, what I taught them was, you treat people, one, the way you want to be treated, regardless of what their, uh, their, their skin color is or anything like that. You, you treat them the way you want to be treated. And I, but I also told them that everybody's not going to treat you the way you want to be treated. You do, you do what you're supposed to do. But I also had that conversation with them that 
there are going to be times that because of the color of your skin, you're going to be treated a certain way. You'll hear me talk about my daughter quite a bit. One of the things that uh, she and I used to talk about all the time, and even now, I mean, uh, you know, I, I told her, I said, you know, it, it really comes down to, again, treating people uh, with respect, but also recognize that folks aren't going to treat you the same way. But instead of being mad about it, I want you to understand why. Sometimes it's going to take you asking a question or two. You know, my wife is mixed. Her mother was black. Her father was uh, uh, was white and had some Indian uh, in him. My wife grew up uh, having to deal with being, you know, uh, biracial. Uh, it's, it's so funny that if you ask uh, a child or, or, or a biracial person, what is your race, nine times out of ten they're going to say black, which is not wrong. But what happens to the other, the other part? You're also something else, too. But I think a lot of times I think society has pushed us to look at uh, race in that manner. It's almost like if you see a biracial kid or a child, automatically that child is black and nothing else. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm not saying that's a good thing either because we're missing something there. Does that make sense you guys? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's about recognizing the whole person and the whole picture of cultural diversity. And also, I, you know, the experience of being biracial, you know, I'm sure is, is much different sometimes within the community. Uh, yeah, I would say with my, my daughter, even though she's two years old, uh, I can kind of see in her a, a questioning or a reckoning about, about race, you know, with the dolls that she plays with. You know, sometimes how she interacts with someone who's white or black, you can kind of see a difference, that, or at least that she understands that there's a difference. And uh, how she perceives herself as she grows up, I think it's something that we'll, we'll have to uh, really grapple with over time. Yeah, definitely I, I do. There are definitely some things that I do in my personal life, even with my daughter, she's 10, like I said earlier, is we try to introduce her to diversity early on, in the type of uh, school environment we have around, we want to make sure it's diverse to even the place we worship, you know, go to church at, it's highly diverse as well. And also, one of the things that she just recently read uh, a book about a young girl who has cerebral palsy, and because of that, she got a doll that's in a wheelchair, right, to play with. Because it, just because someone is differently able don't mean they can't do something, right? So that's one that's one. One really important thing from my family and I, that diversity is the hallmark of what we do. We like to champion, champion differences, right? It's, it's okay to see differences. It's okay to see color. I tell people that all the time. I said, when you say you don't see color, what you're really saying is you're dismissing the most obvious trait about a person, right? That's what you're doing. And you're really trying to just really say, hey, I don't make the decisions based on what I see. Uh, and I understand that, but really, I always encourage people. I said, you know what, it's okay. I want you to see me as I am, right? Not how you'd be more comfortable seeing me. I can definitely identify with that. You know, I don't live in a very diverse area, and I think a lot of people in Minnesota might be able to identify with not their communities, especially rural communities, may not be very diverse. But there are still ways that you can expose your children uh, to diversity and, and teach them 
about being kind and respectful and inclusive to everyone. I know that the summer when my kids were exposed to the evening news, I mean, I can't control that they saw a lot of violence on, on the evening news this summer with everything unfolding across the nation. But what that did is it really opened the door for me to have those really crucial conversations with my kids. You know, and like you, I try. I try to do my best to expose them to diversity whenever possible. One of my kids is in a Spanish immersion program, and she, you know, she's nearly fluent, and I can barely converse with her at this point. But I just think it's really important, at least for me uh, as a mom, to make sure that I'm exposing them to diversity as much as I can, even though I don't live in a diverse area, and uh, to make sure that, you know, they're going out into the world with, with kindness. So what does everybody think about what leadership can do in, in your organization or within this organization, within USAFE? What can we do as an organization to be inclusive? Hey, this is Larry again. Hey, leaders play a pivotal, a pivotal role in, in diversity and inclusion initiatives and programs, whether it's having hard, uh, targeted hiring initiatives, whether you uh, go out, expand your, your recruiting net to go into non-traditional places looking for talent, to include people who are differently able or disabled, to be inclusive to bring them into the workforce, start recognizing your own staff that you have in, in your local places of business. The government always releases the different special observance moms. You know, start trying to celebrate those to be inclusive. Do like a diversity day where you, you have everybody gets represented in a, in a diversity day type to really make an, an intentional effort to show that you're doing that. Pay attention to your hiring trends. Sometimes you can be hiring fairly and choosing the best candidates, but because of any type of uh, potential bias that people have, because we all have a bias no matter who we are, right, um, you may end up having a glass ceiling. So you, you should always, you know, do a self-assessment of oneself and also look at your different practices you have inside your organizations to make sure, one, am I casting the right kind of net? Two, how do I look compared to my, my local uh, demographics, either where I work or in the local community? Am I skewed one way, vice the other way? And why is that? How, how did we end up here? You know, constantly challenge yourself to be open to looking for new ways to make sure that you're being inclusive and that your workforce is, is really should be a premier place where everybody can feel they can come and feel like they have some type of equity on when they get there. I do agree with what Larry just said. So I've been with the Corps for six years, and this has been one of the best places I've ever worked for. Uh, the people I work with every day are engaging. They're very kind, very smart, very energetic, and very passionate about what they do. However, sometimes it can be a bit isolating when you're one of the few people of color uh, in leadership roles in your organization. And that's something that I've, I've noticed, at least in where I'm at in my district. When I had a chance last summer, I got a chance to do a 120-day detail in another district. It was just very eye-opening how diverse that district was compared to our district. There are many people, women, Asians, uh, black people, people of color, uh, in leadership roles and in positions in that district. And you can definitely kind of sense the difference and feel a difference with how you're, you know, we're, we're perceived and how you're treated and how, you know, valued your, your input was that organization. So I agree if, if our commanders, if our leadership can focus on, on hiring, you know, 
more diversity within the core and, and to sort of piggyback what Larry said, you know, to try to emulate uh, the area where you are. I think that would go a long way to providing a very inclusive, open workspace for the Corps of Engineers. So one of the things, too, that I, I like to, to, to talk to um, about employers with, too, is your mentoring programs, right? I said people tend to gravitate towards people who look like them or people who they feel share a similar life story or experience, right? And that's okay. And that's okay. So having a mentorship program that's reflective of, the, of your leadership, like Alex here, for example, to have other young people of his ethnic background see him in leadership, to be mentored by someone like, like Alex or Donnell or you, Courtney, to encourage them. Because when they see, hey, they made it, right, how do they make it, sharing your, your recipes for success, I think also goes a long way when you're mentoring programs. And also taking the opportunity, too, to mentor somebody who doesn't look like you or have a, the same type of background is also important, right? So they'll get to see it, someone different, a different kind of style, a different type of personality that can shadow stereotypes and really help that person um, become more culturally competent. You know, once we hire more diverse uh, people, have a more diverse workforce, what will really help people stay with the corporate engineers is to have good mentors. I was very blessed in my situation to have a good mentor who helped you know, lead me through the process, you know, being a new attorney at the time, really kind of teaching me his ways and really helping me flourish early on in my career. I don't know, you know, if I didn't have this mentor, if I'd still be in the same place that I am now. So I think it's important that, you know, once we get people who want to come to the core, you know, to have someone be a mentor to them to help them through the first, you know, couple of years in the job, I think would really increase the retention of, of diverse uh, people in the course. You know what, Alex, I, Larry, and, and Courtney, I'm, I want to ask all three of you guys, uh, three of you, <laughs> that was so sudden, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, I want to ask I heard that, Janelle. I want to ask all three of you uh, a question. Alex, Larry, do you ever, have you ever felt like you got in the position that you're in or you got hired for a job because, uh, or have you ever been asked, were you hired because you were making a quota? Or maybe somebody felt like, you know, that's, that's the reason why you're there. You're not as, you're not as qualified. Courtney, do you feel like, uh, or have you ever felt like uh, you got a position uh, because, you know what, we need females. So, yeah, you know what, she's got some stuff that we like. You know, you ever felt like uh, you were you were given a position because you're making a quota? And, and I'll let you guys figure out who wants to answer first. At first when I was thinking about this, I was like, well, not really. But, but now when I think about it, yeah. You know, my first federal job was working with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And so I worked in a male-dominated work environment. So, yes, I definitely think in that case that they were looking for female officers and females to work in that career field. Oftentimes, like myself, when I was hired, I was hired in, in a secretarial role where you're still working for, you know, in the correctional capacity, but you're also working on more administrative tasks. So even though there, I felt, I felt like there could have been more to expand their hiring opportunities to not just place women in roles that they 
thought that women would fit in like an administrative role. I guess, yeah, I, I guess you could say in that instance, I definitely felt like perhaps I was hired uh, to fill maybe a unintentional quota perhaps. What about you, Alex? Yeah, so I can't speak to uh, being hired at the core. I don't think that my race or, or background really played a, a huge role in how I got here per se, but um, I, I do have an experience from college. When I was, you know, a college, um, I think sophomore, I applied for a summer internship with a large financial services firm in St. Louis. And, you know, I had really good grades. I was, uh, you know, dean's list, you know, had everything I think you wanted to, to have as some kind of good candidate. I had a hard time, I believe, getting hired uh, for an internship through my school career services. It's not until I went through um, a separate diversity program called Inroads that uh, was specifically geared to getting minorities um, into these corporate positions that I was able to kind of break the door, get the interview, and eventually get this summer prestigious position that I that I had for that summer. So, uh, yeah, there's probably, you know, um, a reason why um, I got that through that program compared to maybe other venues that I would have used. You know, I think that company, you know, kind of knew that that was their way to get, you know, their, their quota or, you know, uh, participation of diverse people to come work for them. I mean, that's that I, I'm grateful I had that experience, but um, I, I do wish that it didn't have to necessarily be that narrow path, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. I know that you talk about quotas in hiring. It's always important to me, you know, working in the EEO profession that, you know, when we're looking at reports at the end of the year, we're always looking at benchmarks, right? Like we want to we wanna compare ourselves to benchmarks, but we don't have specific quotas in hiring. But it's definitely interesting for us to be able to talk about, like, what our perception is. Like, do we think we ever got hired because uh, of our gender or our race? Hey, Larry, what do you have on, on this topic? Do you feel like you were ever hired specifically because of, you know, your gender or your race? No, I don't, but one thing I want to add, I think a lot of people truly misunderstand affirmative action and affirmative action planning. They think that means less qualified minority, um, when back further than the truth, because you're always going to hire the best qualified candidate. What that means is you're going to cast a wider net in non-traditional places. Instead of just posting on a federal job board, you may do a recruiting event at a historical black college or university and you may get a different type of candidate that you didn't even know was out there. So that's what these, these diff- different type of plans do. And that kind of narrative of thinking that it's an unqualified person is going to get a job from a more div- diverse, deserving person is really a misnomer, and I, I like to put that out there. An example I had of that, I, had, um, I was about to separate from the military at the time, and me and this other uh, fellow sailor were both going to apply for this job. On, near the, our Navy base. So he came down to my office because the, the job was really doing what I was doing in the Navy at the time, right? And I said, hey, I'm training. I said, hey, I also applied for the job, but I will train you and give you some insight and even help him with his resume. So I did that for him. I, I trained him on the specifics of the job, uh, the complexities of the job, which were fine. So no secrets. I even showed him my resume and some of the things I used when I wrote my resume as well. So both 
he and I uh, interviewed for the, were interviewing for the job. So we were sitting side by side, uh, waiting to be called in to be interviewed. And he was like, yep, you got this job. I said, what makes you say that? He said, because affirmative action. They need a minority, so you got it. I said, so the only reason you think I will get this job over you is solely because I'm a minority. I said, you don't think it's even conceivable that I trained you yesterday for this job. I said, did I train you, right? You came to me for assistance to train you on a job that you're about to apply for. I saw your resume. I said, you have an associate's degree, right? He said, yes. I said, and you saw mine. I said, I have a master's degree. I said, so you got those two huge data points that you know for sure, and the only thing you can think of is the only way I'm going to get this job is because I'm a minority because of affirmative action. So, you know, he got quiet. I said, I don't want to, I said I'm not saying it to make you feel bad or put your head down. I said, I'm here to, to shatter those kind of beliefs. I said, because that's not what that, those programs are for. And I said, you should know that right now. I said, hopefully after this conversation we have, you will start challenging anyone who believes that kind of thing, right? Because you don't know. You know for a fact I'm overly qualified for this position. I'm a degree professional. I'm also a veteran. So I, I hit all those wickets going into it, and I even helped you prepare for your interview, right, by asking you interview-type questions. So I said, so if, if it couldn't possibly be the only reason, right? And he said, well, I didn't think of it that way. And so, you know, I didn't get offended at all. I wanted to make him kind of understand the logic flow of what just occurred and, and what he said so he can understand, one, why someone would be offensive by that, and two, so he can understand what affirmative action truly does. So, yeah, that, that was my personal experience with that. Wonderful conversation. I, I, I really, I, I'm really liking this. I, oh, man, we got, what, 15 minutes? So, uh, but, but good stuff. I'm glad you said that about the affirmative action thing because everybody gets that. Uh, they get that messed up every time, you know, and they think exactly that way. It's like, well, yeah, they're giving it to somebody who's not qualified when, in fact, that person of color or that woman is probably more qualified uh, than the usual candidates that they get. So, Larry, I appreciate you uh, uh, talking about that. Yeah, is there, you know, this topic has got me thinking about stereotypes and how stereotypes can really be damaging and I think this is a great example of one, you know, it's a stereotype that, you know, EEO programs are here to, like you said, create affirmative action to hire somebody based on, you know, the fact that they're a woman or a minority, and that's not the goal at all. So is there anything that agencies can do or uh, organizations or businesses can do to break down those barriers or those stereotypes? Uh, this is Larry again. Absolutely. I think what you guys are doing right now is fantastic. I think this can be a, a best practice in any organization, whether federal or or, cor or corporate world, to be able to have these open and frank discussions so people feel more comfortable. Because I, I think the real issue that, that plagues the country right now is we never had a any kind of racial reckoning or real hard conversation to talk about where we are. There are going to be some disagreements, just like any conversation or any relationship, and that's okay. But to, to understand the structural nature of how things occurred and how those things have lasting and ongoing impacts, it's worth knowing, right? 
being able to know these type of things, and you under you will have a better understanding. And we'll, you'll be willing to try to fix some of the long-standing issues in our country. Yeah, I'll add something to that too. So I think it goes back to leadership being able to hire a diverse workforce that's competent and that will um, break down those stereotypes. I think if, if someone is in a minority in, in an organization, there's usually an added pressure, an added weight for them to, to do above and beyond what their coworkers are doing. And, you know, you have sort of one strike against you. Um, you have to be perfect all the time. And so you know, I, I think if our leadership and people in hiring positions can hire more diversity, I think that will help show people that, yes, there are many competent, diverse people who can do the job very, very well. And I think that would also help to take off the pressure that some other people may have if they're, you know, only one or two uh, of the diverse workforce in a given position or organization. Can I add something to that? This is Larry again. Mm -hmm. I think, Alex, you really hit on a very important topic as well, because I do think uh, a lot of times people of color sometimes feel they got to work twice as hard just to be even, right? And that's enormous pressure. That's enormous pressure when you start looking at I got to do twice as much as someone else just to be even. And that that pressure, one, it can really warp your confidence, um, your belief in oneself. And sometimes you end up being your own worst enemy, right, by thinking that everything's against you if you're not living up to this, this, this moniker of, of have to work twice as hard. So that's why it's important to have really good, strong mentors to ease that burden for you, right, to give you a, a clear path and guidance, to have these open dialogues and discussions. I, I think it is important to make sure you cast your uh, your, your hiring net as wide as possible to, to, to get qualified candidates of all ilks to come work at your organization um, because people definitely respond to people, like I said earlier, who either look like them or share a common life story, right? So it's important to be well represented to include, you know, differently able people or disabled people um, in your workforce as well. So people will know that everybody with an opportunity in my, my workplace can excel, no matter who you are and what your background is. As we um, have been having this conversation, you know, something that really struck me is that, you know, in my life, adversity is always created growth and innovation. And while these topics are difficult and, you know, we've all experienced different, we've all had different life experiences and, and have experienced adversity in one way or the other. And I'm just interested in hearing about how that adversity has created growth for each of you in your life. If you could give any examples or if you would uh, have anything to mm -hmm. share on that topic. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to some adversity. So going in St. Louis, I went to a public school uh, that was diverse. You had, you know, a good group of sort of wealthy Caucasian students who made up probably the majority of the school. And then you also had a group of minority kids who were, who were bussed in from uh, various parts of the city to, to, this, to the school. The, the, the teachers there, I don't know, inadvertently or inadvertently seemed to sort of treat both categories of students differently. In my case, uh, you know, the teachers assumed that I wasn't smart enough to be in, you know, the normal class classroom where the majority of the white kids were. 
I was, you know, put into uh, remedial classes because they thought that I had problems with reading or, you know, learning the material the way that the other students did. I was very fortunate to have a very persistent father who, who fought against that mindset or, or practice um, and really pushed for me to be included with the other kids and, you know, to, to be treated the same. And uh, by having that, that confidence from my father who really, you know, knew that, that I could learn, you know, just as well if not better than most of these other kids, I really started to succeed. So it's really made me feel very fortunate that I had that, that support to my family um, I really feel badly for, for people who are minorities who don't have that and who um, are left to the whims of the system to treat them disproportionately based on, on what they deserve. And for me, this is Larry again. I have two personal examples of that. One, uh, my daughter in her, her school, a previous school she was in, was getting recognized as student of the week a few different times throughout the year. And uh, I would have her parents always come in to talk about how well she's doing. Hey, I sat in the class, Mr. Holman, and Phoebe is like the fastest reader. She helps other kids with math and the other homework, the science. She's so she's so great, a great student. And then I went back and started reading some of her student of the week reports. It was all about her behavior, her conduct, and her character, right? And then the other kids who didn't look like her, they were talking about um, little Johnny was a vivacious reader. Uh, Susie was great at math, right? And when I, I looked at her, because it, it, it was she was the only African American kid in the class, it was always about her character. Like my daughter was treated extremely well. We loved that particular school, but when I'm hearing from parents, I'm looking at her report card, and she's the top student in the class. But in a public setting where she's getting recognized in an assembly, we're only talking about her her character. Right, so I think you know that that kind of plays in there. You know, they're form she's forming her identity now, right? When you start reading, reaching about the age of seven uh, through twelve, you're, you're forming who you are at that point. And so that point was they're all, always talking about her character, but every other student was talking about their academic prowess. So you know that's the reason why we left that school because I'm like, hey, wait a minute. Why is she being recognized for reading, math, science, English, all the things she's excelling in and leading the class in, but we're talking about her character every time she wins Student of the Week. For me, this is a personal story for me. It's kind of funny. I don't know if you're familiar with the 80-20 rule when it comes to uh, leading people, that you spend 80% of your time on 20% of your people. Uh, when I first came into the Navy, I was in that 20%, right? I was that problem employee that, that many people have. Um, I had a chip on my shoulder that hold twice as hard. I got to work twice as hard just to be even. That pressure was even was too much for me at the time. So when I got to my ship, I was a, a sonar technician. I was so excited to start working on my equipment because I spent almost two years in school learning how to operate sonar equipment and repair it. And so when I get there, the first thing they do, they send me to the galley to wash dishes, right? I had to spend six months there. I was like, ah, that was awful. Then when I come back from the galley, what do they do? I became a damage control petty officer where I had to go clean um, out uh, deck drains, <laughs> shine up the brass on the fire on, on fire hoses and things of that nature. So I had to do that for about six months. So a year has passed, and now I'm pretty dejected, and I start being just a just a bad kid. And they're about to send me back to the uh, to the galley to the mess decks again for my second turn. 
and I just got I got sick of it. So um, I actually went AWOL, believe it or not, and went home. And so I wasn't coming back, and my um, my supervisor called and left a message on my mother's phone and said, Larry, if you listen to this, I'm calling your mama. I'm like, I picked the phone up. Oh, my God, wait, 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 don't call my mama. I'm coming back because uh, my mom didn't know I went AWOL. So I was gone about four days. I came back. Um, of course, I was in a lot of trouble. Um, my supervisor took care of me, and he said, you're not leaving this boat until you read every publication, do all your, they were called PARs, there's a personal qualification system you had to do to qualify to advance. He made me do those because I was delinquent, didn't get those done. And there's a major inspection coming that uh, if you were qualified, Anybody, they can select anybody to, to go out and perform the test to be graded, and your ship could either pass or fail by whoever they have to, to do this particular test. So I was up. I studied on my own. I learned how to operate the maintenance of the equipment with nobody there. One, I couldn't leave the ship and I was in trouble. And um, everyone was like, oh, God, we hope we don't, they don't call Larry. He's a bad apple, right? So, of course, would fate have it, they called me to operate the equipment, and also, I had to demonstrate I know how to maintain the equipment. Out of probably about 5,000 sailors, I was number one on that score sheet. It was that point in my career where I first time I had someone who believed in me, encouraged me. He held me accountable, but he didn't give up on me. So that really changed me from being like the worst sailor on my ship until a year later I was the number one sailor on my ship. A great story, and, and you know what? Uh, you, you, now you make me think about my ship, but that's another podcast, another time. Uh, but you know what, Alex, uh, Larry, you guys made some very, very valuable and valid points. At the end of the day, really, what you want and and what we're striving for, all of us, and I'm, you know, I'm, Courtney, I'm throwing you in there too. It's just equal ground. You know, we, we want to be look at equally, look at me as far as what I'm bringing to the table and all that. And I get it. I absolutely get it. You know, that added pressure that we put on ourselves to be better. And I can tell you right now that weighs on you, you know, uh, and I know that there's somebody out there that's going to be listening to this podcast. You know, you, you got some stuff on your mind and all that. And I want you to know right now, don't go it alone. You know, you talk to somebody, believe me, EAP, I, I know that uh, some people might think that EAP is a joke. It's not. And you know what? If you don't feel comfortable with EAP, you know what? Reach out to CISM, uh, Critical Incident Stress Management Team. That's what we're there for. I'm the program manager for MVD. Uh, you can call me. Uh, I don't mind listening to you. At the end of the day, uh, even though Larry works for somebody else, we're still family at the end of the day. That's the way I view it. Uh, please, you know, do not hesitate to reach out to those uh, resources that are available for you and stuff. But, Larry, uh, Alex, I, I appreciate you guys saying what you said, you know, and, and we're going to press forward. And, and I hope that people take what you all said today uh, and, and apply it. Uh, I, I just think that, you know, we'll be, we'll be so much better for it. Courtney, I'm going to hush. I'm going to turn it back over to you and – Thanks, you Janelle. To, you're welcome. Yeah, I I completely agree with everything that you said, Janelle. You know, just remember that your EEO office is always here. You know, every district has an EEO officer. If you don't know where to go and you need uh, just a list of resources, give us a call. 
we're just a phone call away and we can direct you, you know, a resource that can assist you, whether that's your SISM team, the EAP, or a local chaplain, you know, we're, we're here to help. I just want to thank Larry and Alex for coming here today. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your experiences and ideas on how to further diversity and inclusion. I especially enjoyed our conversation regarding adversity and the examples shared as to how those experiences have really created and contributed to growth in your life. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank you very yes. much. Yes. So thank you again, Alex and Larry, for joining us today for this edition Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. And to our listeners, we want to hear from you. We want to know what topics are important to you and people you are interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together. Thank you.